Lord, I come to you in the name of Jesus and thank you so much for the way you have blessed this conference. I thank you for the blessings of fellowship and for the blessing of hearing your word proclaimed, for the times that we've spent together here, Lord. It's just been so wonderful. I thank you for this church. I pray now for the anointing of your spirit as I present this particular message. And Lord, I pray that there will be new understandings that will come to us. I pray that most of all, though, that through what I present here, that we will come to an understanding that we're living on borrowed time, that time is short, that we need to commit our lives to holiness, that we need to commit our lives to evangelism. And I pray that all of us will be drawn into a deeper relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, when I think of prophecy in the news, I always think of a verse in the book of Habakkuk. And that verse is Habakkuk 1.5. Look among the nations and observe. Be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. That could have been the headlines of the paper yesterday. It's, that's how fresh it is. It may have been written almost 3,000 years ago, but I tell you, that is what I feel like when I look around the world today, that God is doing so many things so quickly, as Al has just pointed out. We are living in exciting times when we can really see ancient Bible prophecies fulfilled before our very eyes. And I could give you many examples of that, but I don't have time to do that. I only have time to give you three examples of Bible prophecy in the news today. The first relates to the nation of Israel. And I want to start there because Israel is the cornerstone of end-time Bible prophecy. Everything revolves around Israel in end-time Bible prophecy. God began fulfilling many prophecies regarding Israel during the 20th century, and I want to take a look at just four of the most important. And there's a long list of prophecies he began fulfilling in the 20th century, but we'll look at only four that relate to Israel. The first has to do with the regathering of the Jewish people. This is the most prolific of all Old Testament prophecies. It's mentioned more than any other prophecy in the Bible in the Old Testament that in the end times God is going to regather the Jewish people from the four corners of the earth. Here is an example in Isaiah chapter 11. It will come about in that day. If you know the book of Isaiah, you know that when he uses that term, in that day, he's talking about the end times. He says it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples. That word signal there is the same Hebrew word for banner, pennant, flag. So there's going to be a flag in the end times. It's going to have the root of Jesse on it. It's going to draw the Jewish people like a magnet. Look at it, verse 11. It will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover a second time. The first time was from Babylon. This is a second regathering with his hand. And he's going to regather his people from where? From Assyria, from Egypt, from Petros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Amoth, and from the islands of the sea, which is a Hebrew colloquialism for the entire world. He makes that clear in verse 12. And he will lift up a standard. There's that mention of the flag again for the nations. And he will assemble the banished ones of Israel and weather gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is all the Jewish people, not just the northern nation of Israel, the southern nation of Judah, but all the people of Israel and Judah will be regathered. And where from? From the four corners of the earth. We are seeing that with our own eyes. And there's the flag which is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. In the center of it is the star of David, and it said in the previous verse that in the end times a standard is going to be raised, and on that standard will be the root of Jesse, and that's exactly is what is on the Israeli flag today. That flag is designed to be like a prayer shawl, and on that prayer shawl the star of David 
It is the root of Jesse. It is a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, this particular, the significance of this particular prophecy of the regathering of the Jewish people is emphasized in a, a prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 16. Also, this particular statement in Jeremiah 16 is made verbatim in Jeremiah 23. Two times he makes this statement, and it emphasizes how important uh, this uh, regathering is. Look what it says. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their people. Now, there is no way you can understand the significance of this statement unless you understand a little bit about Jewish history and Jewish customs. Now, one of the most important feasts that's celebrated every year among the Jews is the Feast of Passover, celebrating their great deliverance from Egyptian bondage. In the Jewish mind, the greatest miracle that God ever performed in all of history was the miracle of delivering them from Egyptian captivity. Since the Jews don't believe in the resurrection, they consider the greatest miracle in the history of mankind their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. They teach this to their children from the time they're born. It doesn't matter whether they're conservative, orthodox, reformed, or secular. All Jews know the story of the Exodus, and they realize that the Bible presents it as the greatest miracle in the history of their people. But this passage says that when it's all over and done and God has accomplished all His purposes, the Jewish people will look back on their history and they will no longer swear by the God who delivered them from Egyptian captivity. But they will swear instead by the God who regathered them from the four corners of the earth. What's the point? It's the same God. What this is saying is that when it's all over and done and the Jewish people look back at their history, they will consider what is going on right now to be a greater miracle than their deliverance from Egyptian captivity. And you and I are privileged to live in a time when we can see that with our own eyes. The average Christian who knows nothing about Bible prophecy doesn't even have the faintest idea that he's witnessing one of the greatest miracles that God has ever performed among the Jewish people. What an exciting time it is to live in when we can see this with our own eyes as they're regathered literally from the four corners of the earth. Well, that occurred in the 20th century. It began in the 1890s when God raised up a visionary by the name of Theodore Herzl, who was the father of the Zionist movement. Herzl was a Hungarian Jew. In the 1890s, he was living in Austria. He was a great intellectual. He was a journalist at the time. And something happened in France, something that's going on in France today. A great wave of anti-Semitism swept the nation. And the French government decided that they wanted to hang a Jew. They decided they wanted to put the Jews in their place. And so they indicted this man, Alfred Dreyfus, who was accused of treason against France. He was a French army officer, a high army officer. He was loyal to France. He was a Jew. But they just decided they would accuse him of treason, knowing that he was not guilty of treason. They accused him of treason, and they held a trial to, uh, to uh, convict him of treason. This trial became famous all over Europe, and so, as a result of that, Theodore Herzl decided to go to Paris and cover the trial. When he got there, he could not believe his eyes. Tens of thousands of Parisians, some of the most sophisticated, cultured people in the world, were standing in the streets around the courthouse shouting, Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews! And Herzl had an epiphany. As that occurred, as he watched that going on, as he realized what they were doing, it suddenly occurred to him that a Holocaust was coming. 
that the Jewish people needed to get out of Europe. Up to that point, he thought they had been assimilated. And he realized they had not been assimilated, that they would never be assimilated. And so he went back to Austria, and he wrote a little pamphlet called The Jewish State, which was published in February of 1896. And in this pamphlet, he began to argue that the time had come for the Jewish people to go back to their homeland, to go back to what the world called at that time Palestine. This little pamphlet was, had to be anointed by God because it just set off a bomb all over the world uh, among Jewish people in all parts of the world. It caught their imagination, and suddenly they began to talk about going back to their homeland, and they began to stream back. First, it resulted in the Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland in 1897. And at that particular conference, Herzl wrote in his diary these words, I believe our movement will produce a Jewish state within 50 years. That was what he wrote in his diary. And sure enough, 50 years later, in November of 1947, the United Nations voted to create the state of Israel. Well, the Jewish people began to stream back. We've seen the fulfillment in the 20th century. The 20th century began with 40,000 Jews in Israel. By the end of World War II, there were 800,000. Today, 6 million almost as many as were killed in the Holocaust in World War II. It is the greatest mass migration in human history, the only time a nation has ever ceased to exist and been reestablished. Which brings me to the second prophecy concerning the Jews in the end times that I want to emphasize today. And that's been fulfilled in our day and time, and that is the reestablishment of the state of Israel. The regathering led to this second great miracle. This momentous event occurred in Tel Aviv on May the 14th, 1948, when David Ben-Gurion stood up, as you can see in this picture, and proclaimed the independence of the state of Israel in accordance with the United Nations uh, declaration that had been made the year before. Here's a picture of me standing in the same place in 1987, also reading this uh, declaration of independence. It was prophesied in several places in the Hebrew Scriptures, several places, but my favorite is a symbolic prophecy. That's in Isaiah 66, verses 7 through 8. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a son. Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? What, a, what an interesting prophecy that is. It's a prophecy that one day a nation will be born uh, in one day. It will be brought forth all at once, and then the birth pains will come. They will come after the birth, not before the birth. But after the birth, who has ever heard of such a thing? As he says, before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a son. Who has ever heard of such a thing? Well, that's exactly what happened. The state was established on May the 14th, 1948, and the next day the war began. The War of Independence lasted from 48 to 49. Then came the Suez War of 1956. Then the Six-Day War of 1967. Then the Yom Kippur War of 1973. Then the... Uh, uh, Lebanese War of 1982, and then came the uh, uh, Gulf War of 1990, and then came the uh, uh, Arab Intifada, the Arab Uprising from 2000 to 2004, then came the Hezbollah War of 2006, and then came the a war in Gaza against Hamas in 2009. Just war after war after war after war. The birth pangs continue to this day, 60 years later, just as it was prophesied in the Scriptures. The birth pangs continue, and they will continue until the Lord returns. But let me tell you something about this. 
then Jews will continue to win war after war. And the reason is that in Zechariah 12, 6 it says, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves, so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell in their own sites in Jerusalem. He says in the end times, Israel is going to be like David against Goliath. In the end times, Israel will consume all of the enemies round about, and that's exactly what they've done. They are one of the smallest nations in the world, only 300 miles long, only 75 miles wide, as small as the state of New Jersey, and yet they're considered to be the world's fourth greatest military power, and probably number one in terms of the effective use of that power, as we're going to see pretty soon when they attack Iran and destroy the facilities there. Now, the third one is the reoccupation of the city of Jerusalem. Again, there are many prophecies about this happening in the end time. One that I would mention is in Zechariah chapter 8, beginning with verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, and the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem. That was written after the Jews had already returned from Babylonian captivity. So he was talking about a future regathering when they would be brought back to the city of Jerusalem. And every time I go to Jerusalem and I go to the Jewish quarter, I think about this particular prophecy because there's a square, what what we would call a square or a plaza in the middle of the Jewish quarter. And I go there and I sit on a bench usually and eat lunch. And while I do, I watch the children playing in the plaza. They play there. Just as it says here, the boys and the girls will play in the streets of Jerusalem. And that is exactly what is heaven. You see, uh, the... The Jews were evicted from Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 A.D. The Romans were followed by the Arabs. The Arabs were followed by the Mamluks out of Egypt. The Mamluks were followed by the Turks who controlled Jerusalem for 400 years. The Turks were followed by the British who took over in 1917. And then the British were followed by the Jordanians because in the War of Independence, the Jews did not win the city of Jerusalem. The Jordanians kept control of it. They did not gain control of that city until June the 7th, 1967. This is a picture of the soldiers who were weeping at the Western Wall when they came into that city and reoccupied it for the first time in 1,897 years. The Bible said it would happen. It happened in our day and time. And I think it's significant that on that very day, Rabbi Shlomo Gorham, the chief rabbi of the Israeli army and later the chief rabbi of Israel, came up to that wall with a Torah scroll under one hand He pulled out a shofar and blew it, and then he raised his hand up and he said, I proclaim to you the beginning of the Messianic age. You see, he knows the Old Testament prophecies. He knows that when the Jews are regathered, they're back in the land and they're back in the city, that the Messiah is going to come. He didn't have to know any New Testament verses to understand the Messiah is about to come. And so he proclaimed it, the beginning of the Messianic age. This brings us to the fourth of these key end-time prophecies about Israel, and that is the refocusing of world politics upon the nation of Israel. The Bible prophesies that in the end times, all the world will come together against Israel over the issue of the control of Jerusalem. Look at Zechariah 12. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and all who lift it will be severely injured and all the nations of the earth will be gathered together against it. Folks, that's where we are. That's how close we are to the end. 
The Jews have been regathered. They're back. The nation has been reestablished. They're back in their city. And now all the nations of the world, all, including the United States of America, are coming against them over the issue of Jerusalem. The Vatican is saying they want Jerusalem. Uh, the United Nations says they want to internationalize it. The Arabs say they want it divided. The European Union says they want it divided. The United States of America is doing everything we possibly can to force the Jews into dividing not only Jerusalem, but to divide their land and to give away their heartland. We need to pray for our president. We need to pray for our nation because the Bible says in no uncertain terms in Joel chapter 3 that any nation in the end times that gets involved in the division of the land of Israel will be severely judged by God Almighty. We are begging for the judgment of God to fall upon this nation as we put this pressure on Israel today. So pray for our nation. Pray that our president's eyes will be opened and that he will stop this pressure. The whole world has come together against Jerusalem just as prophesied and that's how close we are. We are right at the threshold of the tribulation. This brings us to the second major end time prophecy that I want to mention. One that Al Guest mentioned at the end of his presentation. And that has to do with uh, Europe. Has to do with Europe. The European Confederacy is a very, very important thing. I cannot overemphasize how important it is that this has occurred in these end times. This is the fulfillment of prophecies 2,500 years old. Uh, they go back to the uh, time of Daniel, Daniel chapters 2 and 7, where he says that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue. The statue has a head of gold, it has a chest of silver, it has thighs of bronze, it has legs of iron, and it has feet made up of a mixture of iron and clay. And Daniel was given the interpretation of this dream by God Almighty. He told him, he said, sir, you're the head, Babylon, the great uh, 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 empire that controls the world right now. But he said, you are going to be overthrown by the Medo-Persians. And he named them by name. And then he said, they will be overthrown by the Greeks. And then he goes on to say that there will be an empire following the Greeks, represented by those two legs of iron. And of course, that would have been the Roman Empire, which later divided into eastern and western divisions. So Daniel, through the power of God, prophesied history in advance better than most have written it after the events took place. He said, here's going to be the succession of kingdoms. I mean, this is one of the greatest evidences that the Bible is inspired by God, is this knowledge about the future. For hundreds of years, Prophetic scholars who interpret prophecy literally have interpreted the feet to represent a uh, revival of the Roman Empire in the end times, a loose confederation of nations that would come back together that would represent a revival of the Roman Empire. For hundreds of years, as far back as the Puritans, they have said, watch the end times, you will see the old Roman Empire come back together, and out of that empire will come the Antichrist, as Al pointed out a few moments ago. This interpretation is buttressed by another prophecy in Daniel 9, 27, which says that the Antichrist will arise out of the same nation that destroyed the temple in 70 A.D., and that, of course, was Rome. So, for the Antichrist to arose, rise out of the Roman Empire, the empire must be reestablished. Many have tried to do that throughout history. In fact, ever since the Roman Empire ceased to be, people have tried to reestablish the Roman Empire over and over again. In modern times, people like Hitler and Napoleon and Stalin have tried the best they could to reestablish the old Roman Empire, and all were unsuccessful because it was not God's timing. Then, after World War II, in 1950, the French foreign minister, a man by the name of Robert Schumann, held a press conference in Paris and announced a plan that had been conceived by a French businessman by the name of Jean Monnet. It was a plan 
for the European nations to put aside all of their animosities, all of their hatreds, all of their differences, and to unite economically by pooling the production of coal and steel. It was a mind-boggling plan. Who could think that they would ever do that peacefully? People had tried to do it through war, but they said, no, we've got to do it. If we're going to ever recover from World War II, we've got to cooperate economically. And it, it was the timing. It was God's perfect timing. And the nations agreed to do that. And so, as a result of that, the European coal and steel community came into existence in 1951. It evolved into the European Economic Community in 1957. And it became the European Union in 1993. And today, as Al pointed out, this union consists of 27 nations. This is the world's new superpower. Most Americans do not understand how powerful the European Union is. Let me give you a comparison. Look at this. The population of the United States is 300 million. The population of the European Union is 500 million. 500 million. And it's still growing. The gross domestic product of the United States, $14.2 trillion. The European Union greater, $14.9 trillion. The gross domestic product per capita, ours is much higher because we divide ours among fewer people. So we have a much higher rate there, 46,900 compared to their 33,700. But look at this, exports, 1.3 trillion we have a year. They have 1.9 trillion a year. And our imports are much higher than theirs, which is bad because it results in us having an $800 billion a year trade imbalance, whereas they have a plus $200 billion a year trade balance. This is a superpower in no uncertain terms. And as Al pointed out, it is one that has coalesced very rapidly into more than an economic union. It has become a political union, and there's much evidence of this. Here, for example, is a British passport. But notice, like all passports of the member nations, there is something above the name of the nation because the person is first and foremost a member of the European Union. In fact, it is the intention of the European Union to get rid of national passports so that you have only one that says you're a member of the European Union. They want to get away from the nationalities that are involved. Or consider this, here is the European Central Bank in Frankfurt, Germany. It's the central bank of all of these who have come together and they've issued a central currency called the Euro. Can you imagine the Italians giving up the Lira and the Germans giving up the Deutschmark and, and giving up all these national currencies they've had so for so many years and yet they've done it to have a central currency. In addition to that, Look at this. This is the European Parliament in Strasbourg, France. Here is the European Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And I don't know if you caught what Al said or not, but I want to emphasize it. And that is this court now has the power, has been granted the power to overrule the Supreme Courts of all the member nations. So today, for example, if you have a, a case in Britain and it goes through all the courts and it goes to the highest court in Britain, which is the House of Lords, you can then appeal it from the House of Lords to this court, and this court can overrule the House of Lords. It would like, be like somebody being able to overrule our Supreme Court. These nations have truly surrendered their sovereignty to this new superpower. And then this is the headquarters building in Brussels, uh, Belgium, uh, where the headquarters is located. Now, what the UN, U, uh, European Union has lacked is a strong executive. It has had a committee to run it. A committee of nations, a very unwieldy committee, and it's never had a single individual who was head of this whole organization. Another thing it has severely lacked is a common foreign policy. 
It has allowed each nation to pursue its own foreign policy without having a common foreign policy. But these problems will be remedied by the Treaty of Lisbon of 2007. This treaty has now been ratified by all 27 member nations. It has been awaiting the signature of the Czech president, as Al pointed out, and last Tuesday, on November the 3rd, he finally signed it. So the treaty is now official. And what this treaty is going to do is a lot of things, but the three most important things it's going to do is, number one, it's going to greatly increase the power of the European Parliament. Number two, it's going to create a post of foreign minister who will speak for the European Union and have a united foreign policy for the European Union. And most important of all, it is creating a president of the European Union. For the first time ever, they're going to have a chief executive officer. It is paving the way for the Antichrist. And the very first executive officer, the very first president of the European Union, it appears now, this could change, but it appears now the person who has the inside run on it is going to be the former Prime Minister of England, Tony Blair. Now, I think it's important to pass, uh, point out something just in passing. I don't have time to go into great detail about this. But one of the things that's interesting about this European Union and gives you an idea of where it's coming from, who's behind it all, is the... Uh, is the uh, symbolism that it has chosen for its uh, uh, organization. One of the symbols that it's chosen to emphasize is the Tower of Babel. Can you imagine that? Here is a poster put out by the European Union, the 12 stars at the top, or the stars that are on the flag of the European Union, and it says, Europe, many tongues, one voice. What it's trying to emphasize is that through the European Union, we're going to be able to accomplish what those people at the Tower of Babel were not able to accomplish. We're going to accomplish unity, and we're going to overcome the tragedy of the Tower of Babel when God divided the nations. We're going to overcome that through the power of the European Union. Here you can see the very same thing. This is the, it is the entrance to the Parliament building in Strasbourg, France. And again, it was designed purposely to represent the Tower of Babel. If you can imagine using this kind of demonic symbolism uh, for an organization. But it's even worse than that. The official symbol of the European Union, the official symbol, is right out of Revelation 17. The official symbol, which you will see on, on uh, uh, tiles on the floor, murals on the wall, statues everywhere, is the woman riding the beast. Here, for example, is a cover of Der Spiegel, one of the leading news magazines of Germany. And here is the woman riding the beast, carrying the flag of the European Union. Why do they use this as a symbol of the European Union? Because it's supposed to symbolize the fact that through the European Union, they're going to overcome the beast of nationalism. They're going to put the beast of nationalism in its place, and they're going to be able to unite and be a superpower. Here is another example of it, the Rome woman riding the beast. This is a modernistic statue that has just been erected outside of the Parliament building in Strasbourg, France. But everywhere you look, on their money, on their coins, you will see the woman riding the beast right out of Revelation 17. Is there any doubt where the European Union is coming from? It's coming straight from the pit of hell from Satan himself. I don't think there's any doubt that the old Roman Empire has been resurrected from the dead. It's going to continue to grow. I think it's going to continue to provide the platform, the emergence of the Antichrist, fulfilling the prophecies of Daniel 2,500 years ago. In fact, as it grows, I suspect that what's going to happen pretty soon is they're going to try to get it to be more administratively effective by dividing it into 10 regions and putting an administrator in charge of each of those regions. The Bible says that that final confederation will be one with 10 kings. And I think that's what's going to happen because they're trying to overcome national uh, identities. For example, in the parliament, 
Countries are not allowed to sit together. They do not want any vestige of nationalism. In the parliament, you sit by your ideology. If you're liberal, you sit on the left. If you're less liberal, you sit a little bit further to the right. If you're in the middle, you sit in the middle. If you're far right, you sit on the right. It doesn't matter what country you come from. They don't want to emphasize countries. They want to talk about the European Union. Now, this brings us to the third area of prophecy in the news that I want to consider in this presentation, and that is the United States of America. Now, the situation with the United States in Bible prophecy is totally different from that of Israel and Europe. There are many, many prophecies in the Bible concerning Israel in the end times and concerning Europe in the end times. But there is not one single prophecy in the Bible specifically concerning the United States in the end times. There are general prophecies like all the nations of the world will come together against Israel. That includes us. But not one prophecy that specifically concerns the United States of America. People have tried to find us in all kinds of passages, but I don't think any of those passages point to us in the end times. Now, here's the point I want to make. The very fact that we are not mentioned in Bible prophecy, in the end time Bible prophecy, is a prophecy. It is a prophecy. It is a prophecy by omission. It is a prophecy that we're not going to play a major role in end time Bible prophecy. Do you understand me? Do you follow me? I'm saying the very fact that we're not mentioned is a prophecy. It's a prophecy that we're not going to play any major role in end time Bible prophecy. And that is a very perplexing idea. How could that be? Particularly in light of the fact that we're right on the threshold of the tribulation. We're right on the threshold of all these great events taking place. And we are the world's superpower. Why wouldn't we play a role? And since we're right on the threshold, that must indicate that we're going to be removed from the world scene as a superpower not only quickly, but very suddenly and very soon. How could that happen? How in the world could it happen? Well, I have written a whole book about the United States in Bible prophecy called America the Beautiful Question Mark. And uh, if you want to know all the details, you can go get that book. But I have time to share with you only a few major points out of the book. First, I believe, and I point this out in the book, that the United States of America has what I call a symbolic type, a symbolic type in the Scriptures. And that symbolic type is the ancient nation of Judah. Now, if you will remember, when King Solomon died, his kingdom looked like this, the kingdom of David and Solomon. But when he died, shortly after he died, because of his rebellious son who succeeded him, the kingdom was divided. It was divided between the northern kingdom of Israel where ten tribes lived and the southern kingdom of Judah where two tribes lived. This northern kingdom of Israel existed for 208 years before it was conquered by the Assyrians and taken into captivity and they never returned. During that time, there was not one single righteous king in Israel. 208 years, not one single king who is considered righteous in the Bible. They started in rebellion, they wallowed in rebellion, they ended in rebellion. This was a rebellious state from its very beginning. Now in contrast, the southern nation of Judah was greatly blessed by God. It lasted 136 years longer than the northern nation of Israel. It was blessed with some great kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah and Josiah, among others. The nation was blessed with incredible freedom and prosperity, security. And it was blessed with the presence of Almighty God because the Shekinah glory of God resided in the temple in Jerusalem. But despite all its blessings, the nation began to wallow in pride. It turned its back on God. It refused to repent when God sent prophets 
And when he sent remedial judgments, it just made them even more stubborn. They set their jaw against God until finally God delivered the nation from judgment to destruction with the Babylonians who came in in 586 and destroyed the nation and took the people into captivity, leading to two of the saddest verses in the Bible, 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. You can almost hear the Lord weeping. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. They scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. What sad verses those are. I think you can clearly see how Judah is a prophetic type of our nation. Like Judah, God gave us a land full of natural resources. When the children of Israel went into that land, God said, there is nothing in this land you will lack. It's a land of milk and honey. It has every resource you will need. God gave us a land that had the greatest resources of any nation on planet Earth. God gave us great leaders. God gave us freedom. He gave us prosperity. And God gave us the blessing of using our natural resources and our ingenuity and our technology to spread the gospel all over the world, to translate the Bible into many different languages. He used us as a vehicle of blessing to all the nations of the world, just as he did with Judah. But just like Judah, just like Judah, we began to wallow in pride, and we began to worship the Almighty God. Like Judah, we turned our back on God and we kicked him out of our schools and then we dismissed him from the public arena. We became the moral polluter of planet Earth with our immoral, violent, blasphemous television programs and movies. I don't know if you ever thought about that or not. We've always been a much greater threat to the world than Russia ever was because we are the moral polluter of this planet. Everywhere I go in the world, I know if I turn on the TV set in the motel room I'm in, a hotel room, I'm going to see the most violent, immoral, and blasphemous television and movies that you can possibly imagine all made in the United States of America. We are the moral polluter of planet Earth, and God is going to hold us responsible for that. Like Judah, God has responded by raising up prophetic voices like Dave Wilkerson, uh, calling this nation to repentance. I'll never forget when Dave Wilkerson wrote his first book, Calling This Nation to Repentance, since about 1972. Up to that point, he was the darling of the charismatic and Pentecostal movements. His books were in all their bookstores. He was considered to be their superstar. Uh, his book, the, what was it called? The, uh, the sort of, uh, yeah, the one about the gangs in New York was made into a, a movie starring Pat Boone. It was, it was something, I mean, he was, he was the, a, a celebrity. He was the front man of the whole Pentecostal movement. Then he wrote a book in 1972 saying, this nation is in rebellion against God. God is calling this nation to repentance. If this nation does not repent, God's going to put remedial judgments upon it. He's already done so, and he's going to continue to do so. And what happened? His books were thrown out of the bookstores. He was considered persona non grata. Why? Because people wanted pillow prophets. They wanted somebody to say, everything's okay, peace, peace, don't worry about it, nothing wrong. No, and people want anything, people talking about anything except sin. Nobody wants to hear about sin. The largest church in America right now is a church where you'll never hear the pastor talking about sin. He doesn't talk about blood. He doesn't talk about atonement. He doesn't talk about sin. He just talks about how God wants you to, to be happy 
And, and, and if you'll just follow what he says, you'll be happy. The power, I saw him on TV just the other morning talking about the power of positive thinking and how we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and all this sort of thing. This nation needs to be talked about sin. This nation be, needs to be called to repentance. This nation is wallowing in sin. One of the reasons that Isaiah says that ancient Judah was destroyed, he gives many reasons, but one of the reasons he gave is that this people is a people who have gone so far against God and drifted so far, they call evil good and they call good evil. That's where we are, folks. Abortion is good. Homosexuality is good. Same-sex marriage is good. The lottery is good. Every kind of abomination you can think of, we're saying, it's okay. It's good. We're calling evil good. And we're calling good evil. And let me tell you something. God has a way of dealing with nations, and He deals with all nations in the same way. He has no respecter of person. What I have found is that uh, what he does is first he uses uh, prophetic voices to call the nation to repentance, and if the nation does not repent, then he puts remedial judgments upon the nation. I think the Vietnam War, I think the, the Twin Tower attack, I think the Hurricane Katrina were all remedial judgments that God put upon this nation, calling this nation to repentance. He does that. He, he does not want to, he never pours out wrath without warning. Never. Throughout all of history, he gives warnings. He warns through the prophets, and then he warns through remedial judgments, and if that doesn't work, then he lowers the boom. He does it. He, uh, I think we're looking forward to a time when we're going to see pictures like this all across our country. Because we will not repent, we have set our mind against God. Look what Luke 12, 48 says, to those to whom much is given, much is expected. Did you know there's going to be a greater judgment on the United States of America than on other nations? To those to whom much is given, much is expected. Our judgment's going to be much greater than the Soviet Union. I mean, hey, we've got radio evangelists, we've got television evangelists, we've got churches on every corner, we've got an average of five Bibles in every home. We have no excuse. We can't stand before God and say we did not know. To those to whom much is given, much is expected. Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 16, the blessed will receive double for all the sins if they refuse to repent. Those are ominous scriptures. Those are scriptures that should stop us uh, dead in our tracks to think about these things. There are those I have run across here in the United States of America. I kid you not, you're going to think maybe I'm kidding, but I kid you not. I have run across people in this country who believe that God sits on the throne wrapped in an American flag and that he would never touch this nation. If he would touch Judah where his, where his Shekinah glory resided, where his temple was, he will touch this nation. He will destroy this nation just like he destroyed Judah. And we are just fooling ourselves and deceiving ourselves if we think God's sitting on the throne in an American flag and will not touch this nation. Again, look at the parallels. Judah wallowed in pride, we have. Judah, Judah rebelled against God, we have. God sent warnings, he sent warnings to America. He sent judgment to them, he sent judgments to us. And finally, when they refused to repent, he delivered them from judgment to destruction. And that's what's going to happen to us. We are going to be delivered from judgment to destruction if we do not get on our knees before the Lord God Almighty and repent of the sins of this nation. Now, this is going to have to occur mightily. It's going to have to occur suddenly. How could that happen? How could we be removed from the world scene very quickly, very, very quickly? How could that happen? Well, there are several ways, and I point them out in my book. For example, one way is a terrorist attack on New York City. We had, what was it, 19 terrorists who attacked before. Our stock market lost $7 trillion as a result of that attack. And all they had was some box knives. What if you float a merchant ship into New York City Harbor? They come in all the time. Nobody checks them. 
floats in the New York Harbor with a suicide crew. They set off an atomic bomb. Or they set off a nuclear or a chemical weapon of some sort. New York is totally destroyed. This whole nation would be thrown into absolute chaos. We would have martial law overnight. It would be difficult to get money out of the bank because the whole banking system would, would be uh, crippled by the destruction of the records in New York City. A, a, a terrorist attack could very well be it. Or it could be an external nuclear attack. We're more vulnerable now than we've ever been because not only am I talking about a, a traditional nuclear attack, but uh, it's been mentioned before, the electromagnetic pulse attack, the EMP attack. Did you know an EMP attack requires only one, one atomic bomb? You don't have to be sophisticated. You can be like Korea and have one bomb. All you got to do is explode it over the central United States 300 miles in the air. Just get it over the United States 300 miles in the air, explode it. It doesn't destroy buildings. doesn't destroy people. What it does is send out an electromagnetic impulse that will fry all of the electric grids in the United States and everything else electrical. Pulse makers, pacemakers will stop just like that. Anything electrical, ignitions on automobiles will not work. Everything electrical ceases to operate. And for how long, nobody knows for sure. That is an electromagnetic pulse attack, something that we're very, very concerned about, our, our leaders are at this particular point in time. That could be the way it would happen, with a nuclear, just one, 300 miles above the United States. Or it could be an economic collapse. When I wrote the first edition of my book in 2003, I said that I believe this would be the most likely cause of our destruction. And I said that because money has become our God. It has become our God. And the true God of this universe is a jealous God who does not tolerate idolatry. He does not tolerate it. I think he's going to destroy our God. I said this in 2003 in the first edition. Here's what I wrote. The first thing that comes to mind is an economic catastrophe that will result from our out-of-control debt situation. There is no way to escape the conclusion that America has become a debt junkie. I believe an unprecedented economic collapse is highly likely because our money is the real God of America and the true God of this universe is a jealous one who does not tolerate idolatry. God, by His very nature, is going to be compelled to destroy our false God. In the 2009 edition of my book, I stated that the year 2008 could, in my opinion, very well prove to be the pivotal year for our nation because it could very well be that 2008 will be looked upon as the year in which God decided to move this nation from judgment to destruction. First came the economic collapse of September the 29th when the stock market crash occurred and our economy imploded. The day that occurred, I saw something that I, I just had to rush to the typewriter and start writing about, and that was the fact that that stock market crash was 777 points and it occurred on the eve of Rosh Hashanah. It was like God was declaring from the heavens, I have done this. I have allowed this. I have my signature on it, 777. And it occurs on the eve of Rosh Hashanah as a lesson to the United States of America, do not betray my people Israel. Boy, I tell you, when you see something like that, 777 on the eve of Rosh Hashanah, I don't think there's any doubt that God had something to do with it. And the second thing that occurred in 2008 that is an indication God has delivered us from judgment to destruction is the election of Barack Obama in November. He is the most anti-capitalist, pro-abortion, 
pro-homosexual, anti-Israel president in our entire history, and a man who theologically and philosophically is a pagan humanist who holds Christian values in absolute contempt. His election reminded me of the most imp- one of the most important points I made in my book in 2003, and that is that when God begins to deal with nations in judgment, one of the things He does, one of the kind of judgments He gives a nation is He gives the nation the kind of leaders it deserves the kind of leaders it deserves. We are received the kind of leaders we deserve and we have nobody in the world to blame but ourselves. I think it is clear that we are begging for judgment and we are headed for destruction. Exactly how that destruction will occur, I do not know. But I have some good news, believe it or not. I want to end with good news. I have some good news. The good news is, that regardless of whether it is a terrorist attack, an EMP attack, a a, a continued crash of our economy, or all of those combined, I believe the coup de grace, the shot in the head, will be the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church. I think this is going to be the thing. Think about it for a moment. Think, if the rapture of the church were to occur today, this nation would be reduced overnight to absolute total chaos. That's because we have more born-again Christians in positions of influence in the United States of America than all of Western Europe and England put together. Academia, the military, the business world, the government at all levels would be decimated by crucial leaders being taken out. Martial law would have to be declared to reserve, uh, restore order. And what would be left of our nation would be so little that our only hope, I believe, of survival would be that the leaders would have to seek membership in the European Union, in the emerging world government. There is not one prophecy that has to be fulfilled for the rapture to occur. It can occur any moment. The signs of the times point to the fact that we're on the threshold of the tribulation. That means the rapture is going to happen any moment. It's like right now, when you go to the malls, what do you see? You see Christmas decorations going up. What does that point to? It points to Christmas. But it also lets you know that Thanksgiving is right around the corner. The signs of the times are pointing to the tribulation and the second coming of Jesus, but that means the rapture is right around the corner. It's going to occur any moment. And the question, you know, the point I want to end with is that our time is short, folks. It is very, very short. We are, in fact, living on board time. God is like God is shouting from the heavens. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. God does not wish that any should perish. He wants all saved. That's why He is giving us warnings through prophets. That's why He's giving us remedial judgments. He wants us to repent so that the maximum number can be saved. Jesus is at the very gates of heaven waiting for His Father's command. And the question I have is, are you ready? Are you ready? Well, I tell you I am because at the age of 12, 60 years ago, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, and I was born again. And because of that crucial decision, I can cry out every morning, Maranatha, 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 come quickly, Lord Jesus. Praise the Lord. Thank you.